Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. So great to be back with you. We kicked off a series last week called Flipping Tables, uh, a series on social justice. I was in Denver for the uh, Seahawks game, so Margo kicked it off. Uh, I would love to say uh, that I was out preaching to the people uh, uh, at Denver about Jesus, uh, but I was not. I was at the football game. But his name did come up several times throughout the course of the events there. Um, but uh, great to be back with you. If you missed last week, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com uh, slash talks. This, uh, this talk will be up there as well as the rest of this entire series in case you have to be gone for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but a series on social uh, justice. And uh, I, when I announced it a few weeks ago, because I said we were coming off this series called A Secular Age, discovering kind of what, what our world is kind of looking for and the expressive individualism. And it looks good to talk about justice. And so it makes sense to do this as kind of a... It feels a little bit manipulative, like, well, we're going to talk about this because this is, this is what people want to talk about. Uh, but then it also helps that Jesus was about it as well, as we'll look at today. But I could tell a lot of people kind of uh, shift in their seats because there's a lot safer topics to choose than social justice to preach on from a, a platform like this. Um, and uh, so it's like, yeah, we're going to see this social justice. And you're like, ooh, because there's a fear like, I'm, you know, I'm going to go too far in one direction or make it political. And there's a, a fear that I'm not going to say enough, Right? There's all kinds of, even as I'm preparing for this, I'm like, well, what if I, I should do this? I could, I could go here, I could do this, I could, whatever. And you just feel like there's just, there's a lot of ways, you know, Twitter has proven there's a lot of ways to go wrong on, on all of these things. And uh, so in anticipation of emails about you went too far or not far enough, I wanted to give you an email address to send any sort of concerns that you have uh, to me. It's actually J at faithtricities.org. <laughs> which is my dad's email address. He's a pastor at a church in Pasco. He's not preaching on social justice. So if you send anything there, he's gonna be like, what are you talking about? But he, he'll love it. He loves emails, guys. So make sure to, and people, after first service, people go, that wasn't really his email address. No, I swear to you, that's his email address. So anyways, all right. Uh, if you have concerns, send them there. Um, but here's the deal. Uh, if you are a true student and follower of Jesus, then there's no way you can deny that he said and did things that kind of went against the grain of what was taking place in terms of like a social justice and awareness. And like we, the, the whole series, the, the preface of the series or the title of the series comes from that incident where he went into the temple and recognized that um, there was a system that was going against the poor where they were not allowed to bring their own animals to be sacrificed. You had to buy from here. And there's, a, there's kind of a reason for that, but they, they also worked around it and how, how convenient that it benefited the pockets of the powerful and the rich. Uh, and Jesus comes in and flips the tables over and says, no, no, that's not how this thing works. Anytime you do this in this way, that, 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 that's a broken system. Um, you're also wondering what that has to do with the image of the graphic of the series with this stream that's rolling through it. Um, I'll get there in a minute. Hang on for one second. But there's another instance that, that, uh, that shows for me a little bit more about why this kind of stuff is important and specifically the direction that we're going to take on it. Because when you look at Jesus' actions in the New Testament, he often will do things or say things um, that, that already show some sort of a foundational belief about how the world should work. I'm going to do any flip tables um, it wasn't like he, he had like this three-point sermon as to why this is important. He did this and then, and then would reference some Old Testament stuff to show that you guys already know this, right? He's, he's trying to talk to this people group going, you know what's supposed to be right, and yet you do this anyways. So 
Let me show you another instance where he goes in the temple. He's kind of like a, a young up and coming, doesn't have the big following yet. Um, this is one of his first experiences publicly taking a stance of like, hey, I'm somebody you should listen to. Luke chapter four, he goes into uh, Nazareth and where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of Isaiah uh, was handed to him. Unscrolling it, he found the place. Where does it? He scrolls down to the spot and he reads this out loud. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendants and sat down. Uh, and, and in this in this phrase, what's missing in this specific instance is, um, he, so he reads this like messianic prophecy that they would have, like someday there's gonna be this Messiah figure that's gonna come and right all of the wrongs that are in our society and fix everything that's broken. And uh, we're just kind of waiting and anticipating that day. He reads this passage and he says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your presence. And then he sits down. That's, and that's when he sits down. So what we, we hear that, and that fits in line to what we think about in, with Jesus. Even if you're not religious, like you have kind of probably a high uh, like perception of Jesus. So it, it's like, it like fits within his typical category to say phrases like this or, or, or lean in this direction. But for them, when he reads this and says, this has been fulfilled today in your presence, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Like what he's doing here is making this massive, massive political statement in this way. And he reaches back into commonly held beliefs how the world is supposed to work and uses that as leverage for why people should listen to him. So therefore, what I want to do is not talk about how to do this and how this plays out in society and, you know, hear some stories of this. I, I would love to work a little bit backwards and talk about what did they common, what were some commonly held beliefs that informed Jesus' attitudes on that? And perhaps then, as the political scenery changes for us over the years, as it has in the last 50, 60, 70 years, I mean, every time there's, if I was to speak on political injustice currently, it may ring true now, but it may not ring true in five years. I would rather invest time talking about the commonly held beliefs that will then inform all of those attitudes as we play that out. Does that make sense? All right, so, so, in this, there's a, there, there, um, if you look at the Old Testament, there's, there were definite instances where social injustice was treated as a, as a right, as a thing that's going to be true about the kingdom of, of God and about how he wants his people to live this out. If you're going to rep, then your life better look a little bit something like this. Um, so some, some common ones show up in Isaiah. Isaiah has uh, several. Hosea has a few. Micah has one uh, that, that's pretty popular. Really, really common held ones. And then there's one that shows up in Amos, Amos chapter 5. That is uh, a pretty, once I read it, you've probably heard this before. It looks good on like coffee mugs and pictures with like, you know, cool scenery landscapes. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. It's not Amos talking. He's the, the voice piece of God in this way. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. That last phrase, that's the one that like fits in. If somebody's gonna do like a, a speech or a talk on justice or injustice in the world, 
let it roll on like a stream. It shows up in some of the Negro songs. It shows up in all kinds of different, uh, these, uh, these, this claim towards something's broken in our society and it needs to be fixed. We are looking forward to a day where justice flows like a stream. Thus the picture on the program and thus the thing. But that, that wasn't my, in, in the, the, there you go. See, anyways. All right, so now, I hope it makes sense in that way. All right. Um, so we're gonna look at Amos and I wanna look at, uh, the passages leading up to that phrase and what his message is all about. And I'm going to present it to you in a more um, exegetical type style, which is not typical for me. Uh, maybe you grew up in a church where uh, they're like, well, we're going to spend 46 weeks on the uh, book of uh, Elijah. I hope that, or the, uh, the book of Elijah, that's not even a book, so you should be careful. careful. Uh, the, book of, uh, the book of Luke or whatever, right? And we're going to be like, today's Luke chapter one, next week's Luke chapter two. Anybody want to guess what the week after that is? Luke chapter three. It feels very simple. It feels very dramatic. Some people like that. I don't like it. I like keeping your toes a little bit. I like surprising you and taking you in different directions. So um, don't typically do that. But in this specific series, we will. So Amos chapters, uh, Amos chapter one and chapter two today, and then we'll move on leading up to what was the, what were some of the things that informed Jesus' uh, actions in that way. So what you need to know about Amos is uh, that he was a prophet and a prophet who had a uh, very specific focus. And real quick, quickly, a word on prophets and prophecy, because it can be kind of uh, um, off-putting a little bit to hear. Even I, I said something earlier about like this, uh, like a, a prophetic thing or whatever. Or maybe you grew up in a church where prophet, like the prophetic ministry, or somebody comes to you and they're like, "This is um, so and so. She has the gift of prophecy," and you're like. All right, avoid her. So that's how this works. I get this. Um, prophecy, specifically Old Testament prophecy, was not really like predictive prophecy. Like this is going to happen. It was more along the lines of, and plays out in reality for even us, us today, um, if you continue to do X, don't be surprised if Y happens. And it's said and done and presented to you in a way where there, your life is so, there, there's so much noise that it's hard to kind of hear with clarity, real truth about what I should be doing. So if somebody has ever come to you and every, you know, you've heard the advice a hundred times, but for whatever reason, this time when she said it or when he said it, it kind of struck a chord for you and you, may, you were able to make the connections between my choices and my behavior in this situation and the outcome and the results of the circumstances over here. And so I've had people in my life who they didn't start the conversation with, hey, I have a prophetic word for you, or I'm a prophet or whatever. They would just come to me like, hey, real quick, do you have a second? And they would say things to me where I know that they don't have, they don't know what's going on in my life. I haven't like revealed that to them. They don't, uh, I don't post that kind of stuff on, on social media or whatever. There's no way that they could have known that this has been a struggle or a trial or a depressing period or, or a really optimistic period or I've got family members who are sick of this, that, and the other thing. And something comes through and you go, all right, that was so clearly different. Now, if you're religious, you say that, was, that would be so clearly from the Lord. Or if, if you're not religious, you're like, that's just freaking weird. I don't know how this happened. But when they said it, I'm like, I'm there. Like, like that's it. That's the role of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, they were specifically assigned uh, to the nations uh, of Israel and Judea, as we'll get into. Um, but Amos 1, chapter 1, introduces us to this person, this guy. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, and, and shepherds is kind of a loose term because he wasn't, we think of shepherds 
typically, as it comes from a scriptural standpoint, as like the poorest of the poor. These are the people who were, you know, announced the, the birth of Jesus, and he went from the, the, the wise men on this side of the spectrum to the shepherds on this side of the spectrum. So we oftentimes think of them as poor. In this instance, the words here kind of denote that he was an overseer of shepherds. He was probably a businessman who had a system with lots of different fields and lots of different shepherds. So he was an, he had economic, he was probably very profitable, and all of a sudden he leaves his profession for at least a time period, probably about two years, to focus on having a prophetic word or to go speak words of wisdom to the nation of Israel, specifically, by the way, in the area of economics. As a businessman, he's got experience with how economics are supposed to work. And at this stage in the game or the writing, so Israel, the nation of Israel, Jewish people have come out of Egypt. They have settled in the promised land, what we know today as Israel. Uh, they, uh, there's been some family infighting. They've basically split the one kingdom into two separate kingdoms. You've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. You can think of it like Canada and the U.S. if you want to. That's fine. Uh, and there's, so there's 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Uh, and this northern kingdom has been expanding and expanding. This is who he's, he's speaking to. Um, he's speaking to them in about 760 B.C. Um, they don't know this at this time, but in 722 AD, we know from history that the Assyrians come in from the north, invade, and the northern kingdom is gone. So this is before the, uh, the overthrow of the kingdom. They're operating. They're growing. And as they're growing, they're taking over these defeated nations. And as a result, this is how this works back then, um, these, these defeated nations would then pay tribute or tax to the central king. So they're becoming more and more wealthy as they expand the boundaries of their kingdom. And so he's observing how they are handling this increase in wealth. And what he's noting is that it seems like there is a growing inequality that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That as we get wealthier, it's not filtering down. Not everybody's feeling the effects of this. It feels like it's for a select few, those who are in power. So if by chance you wondered what relevance any of this has to do with modern day America, Hopefully you can connect the dots on some of this stuff, okay? So this is what's taking place in here. And he's like, listen, as a businessman who understands, the, understands some of the ins and outs of the economic system, let me through education experience talk to you about what's wrong with it because I don't know that you for sure see it. That's important. That's very, very important. He's the perfect candidate for all of this. Uh, and he wants to break some news to them <clears throat> about things that are broken. Now, <clears throat> Have you ever had to break the news to somebody that something they thought they were doing right wasn't actually being done right? Have you ever been a boss in a situation where there's a hire or you, you're a supervisor or you're training somebody and they got all excited because they stayed late for work and then you came in the next morning and you're like, thanks for staying late, but that wasn't the right, I mean, we're, we're, you were, <laughs> I have to clean up your mess now, right? Like you've made my job that much harder and they're, they're smiling. They think that they've done something awesome. And you're like, oh, man, what do I do with this? And, and it's so much easier when they know that it's not working out. When you have to have that conversation with them, when you sit down and go, listen, like, we both know this isn't working, right? We th I think you should probably, you know, get out of this career. Go do something different. And it, it's so much easier when they're on the other side of things going, you're right, dude. I feel, I feel like overwhelmed. I need to go back to school. I need to do this. I need to blah, blah, blah. It's really, it becomes really difficult when they go, I'm sorry, what? Like, I, I didn't see it coming. Or in this, like, hashtag why I'm single. Have you ever experienced a breakup where one side of the equation thought that this is going really well? 
And then you sit down with them and you're like, listen, we both know this isn't working. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're like, oh, you just made this so much harder. Oh my gosh. Like you didn't see this coming? That's really difficult. This is what Amos finds himself against. A nation who feels like they have been identified as God's chosen people, true, blessed by God, given all of these nations, and are seemingly doing a decent job presenting themselves as the people of God. And he's about to address them and be like, oh, this is not going well, but you think that it is. Oh boy, my job just got extremely hard. Because the life truth about it, real practical, if, you, if you're not like super religious and don't care about Jewish history or whatever, that there is a deceptive nature uh, to some of our, fa- our failures. You can be failing in something, reality, and not truly know that you are. We, we get that. That's what's taking place in this scenario. All right. So Amos uh, 1, chapter 3, he's introduced himself. He's talked about his role, why he thinks he's uh, an expert on this uh, idea. <clears throat> Chapters, uh, verse 3 moves into what's called, there's just like a subheading underneath this, which, which actually isn't in the, uh, the Hebrew text of it. It's added later for us. It's kind of like a summary about here's what you're about to read about, which says judgment on Israel's neighbors. He's about to illustrate the sins of all of the people that are around them because he wants them to get on the same page. Can we all agree that people are doing things that they think that are right but are actually atrocities towards mankind? Can we all agree that I don't know that they're doing evil because, and they know that they're doing evil. They, they're just doing evil and the worst part is that, that they, they think that they're fine. So he's gonna go through each of these different nations. There's about six or seven of these things. And the format is pretty much the same, and they all start with this. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of X nation, even for four, I will not relent. Little word here, this is a stylistic word thing that he's doing here, okay? This is his way of saying, you know, like for, for three sins, even for four, a way of saying, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. This is a pattern of detestable hate behavior, and God will not overlook it any longer, So here's the presentation. I've given them chances. They keep doing this, and here's what they're doing. I'll read this first one. I'm going to not read every one of them because we'll be here till way too late. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael uh, that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon, the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aaron will go into exile and curse, says the Lord. And all of you are going, I don't know what any of that means, but it sounds bad. It, that's all you need to know. It's bad. Bad news for these people. They thought that they were probably doing something fine, and uh, obviously it's not. Then he goes on. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. What's happening here is that it's not like a prisoner of war. They've taken these things. They're like literally blindly kidnapping people and have entered into like some sort of a slave labor trade agreement where they have set aside their moral responsibilities for human life and have thought, you know what? There's a way to monetize this. We can get wealthy off selling people into slavery and they're our enemies, so we don't owe them anything anyways. And they're not alone in this. The very next phrase or the very next passage, verse uh, nine and 10. This is what the Lord says, for the three sins of Tyre, even before I will not relent because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. I mean, there are people who are doing this, people who are engaged in slave labor who don't see the faults of it. And before you go, how could they not see? Study U.S. history. How could they be so blinded to such an atrocity? Listen, we, 
we would be foolish to think that we are exempt from this or that we would be like, well, we clearly, right? He's pointing this out. Then he goes on, verse 11, for the three sins of Edom, even for four, this is the nation um, who, uh, who they're selling, or, the, or uh, Edom is the, the captives of Edom. This is the people who are being kidnapped and sold out of slavery. They're, they're not safe either because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. They've got this anger issue, which is probably why they felt justified in selling them into slavery. They're terrible people. Look at what they've done. They slaughtered the women of the land. Who deserves to live? Who deserves to have freedom in, in that scenario? So then he goes on. This is what the Lord says, for the three sins of Ammon, even before I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant woman of Gilead in order to extend his borders. This is verse 13. All of these different nations, all these nations surrounding them, going, do you see the injustice? Do you see the brokenness? Do you see what's going on here? Can we not agree? There needs to be some consequences, some ramifications. And you, it feels like you've got these, these Israelites reading this or hearing these prophetic words from these people going, yes, that's why God chose us to be here. That's why we have experienced success and have experienced salvation away from that type of a lifestyle and are doing our best to be a light into the world about the good and the graciousness of our heavenly father. Verse one of chapter two, for the three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. In, in other words, no respect for humanity at all. Now they're not even treating dead people with respect. Then he gets a little closer to home. These are all like surrounding non-Jewish nations. And now he's got a word, but this time it's for the three sins of Judah. This is verse four of chapter two, which is not the nation of Israel who he's called to. It's our brothers and sisters in the faith who we've had some issues with, which is why we broke up into two separate kingdoms. We get it. They're kind of bad. I mean, they're definitely not ripping babies out of the pregnant women's wombs, but you know what? They're not great either. For the three sins of Judah, even before I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Now, he's setting them up in this way. This is the ultimate setup. He's about to introduce an M. Night Shyamalan twist that nobody sees coming, all right? This is the same kind of twist that, remember that story about David and Bathsheba? David sees Bathsheba bathing, and he, she's married to another man. Um, he calls her up, brings her into his house, has sex with her, and then kills her husband. It's a crazy story. You should read your Bible more often. And then, uh, it's this, and then what happens is this, this prophet Nathan approaches uh, David and says, hey, let me tell you a little story. And it doesn't say it in like a parable, but like this actually happened. There's this family who had this precious little lamb. And then that lamb, somebody who was in power wanted that lamb, so they took that lamb from him and, 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 and didn't deserve it, and they did it, and then they killed it. And it was a terrible story. And David's response is, oh, that person should face justice. And then Nathan says to him, that's you. That's you, you sucker, right? And David's like, oh, you know, like he's thrown off in this way. This is the exact same thing. It's, it's really hard to get, to, for, to get people to see the faults of something that they have written off as, well, this is just how it works. So sometimes there's a strategy on making this thing happen. That's what's going on in the first two chapters of Amos here. Look at all these surrounding nations. Look at what they've done. Aren't they terrible? Look at even Judah. They've given up on their holy ways. Isn't that crazy? Shouldn't, shouldn't something be done to which all of them would probably be saying, yes, that type of an injustice deserves consequences. And he's like, I'm glad you think so. Because by the way, there's one more nation to be included in this. For the sins of Israel, for the three or whatever, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. Hold up. Now you're talking about us. He's like, yeah, now that I have your attention, 
Let's talk about you. They sell the innocent for silver. You've come into this economic boon. You're getting wealthier and wealthier in all of this. In this economic system, the innocent are sold for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, some of these basic necessities, they fall into these insurmountable systems of debt. And they ask for a little bit more time to get repaid and you lord it over them and you're constantly trying to nickel and dime every single person in the minutia of things as simple as a pair of shoes and sandals. You don't see how bad this is. You just think this is how business works. They signed up for this credit card. They should have known that the interest rate was going to be that. It's not my fault. It's their fault. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. When a person has no power, others can whip you around, make you jump through hoops, force you to do things you don't want to do and make life miserable for you. This is what you've done. You've gotten a position of power and you leverage economic debt to make people do things they don't want to do, trap them in some certain things. And you probably look at this as small indiscretions, little things. You're right, little, we probably shouldn't do that. And you refuse to see it as significantly rebelling against the way that God's economy is supposed to operate and thus defiling my name to the world. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. He's pointing out to them, you realize that in this, what you have kind of either looked the other way on or have like celebrated or participated in even perhaps, people who can't pay off their debts so they give you a garment of their clothing as like a deposit, kind of like a pawn shop, like hold this, I promise to come back in two weeks with enough money to pay this and I'll get it back. And they're like, great, we'll hold it for you. And then they wear that garment of clothing to church. People are like, that's a really nice coat on you. Thank you very much. It is very nice. It fits wonderfully. Refusing to say, I got it because somebody owed me some money and uh, I'm supposed to give it back, but I'm gonna use it and wear it now. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines, which is a critique against some of the courts and the judges sitting in sort of uh, positions of authority who would take in payments for sins to society, like, you know, traffic, they don't have traffic tickets, but traffic tickets and they pay their fine. And then they take that money and they go to the temple and they make an offering publicly, like look at how much judge so-and-so is giving, right? And it's not even his freaking money. And they're like, that's broken. Do you realize that that's broken? Do you realize you're a hypocrite? Do you realize that you're trying to get the blessing of being a generous person and it's not even your pot that you're pulling from? You realize that that's sick, right? This is Amos talking to these people. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, and I destroyed their fruit above and their fruits below. In other words, listen, you're no match for me. Like, I've done this before. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. This is his... You should know better. I pulled you out of 400 years of systemic slavery, and as soon as you get a position of power and authority, you're putting other people into slavery. This is ridiculous. Are you kidding me? Don't you know that that's not how this should work? If you've been given grace, listen, as a parent, you know this. If you have multiple kids, and one kid comes up to you and like, Dad, you know, this, I'll just play it out for me. Dad, can I have a piece of candy? Sure, yeah. Absolutely, I'm being generous. Did you eat your dinner? No? Well, you know what? This time, okay. I give him a piece of candy. 
And what do they do? They're, so, they're like, oh, thanks, Dad. Thank you so much. I love this. You're such a great dad. That's what they say all the time. Then they go to their, then they go to their younger brother and younger sister and go, nah, 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 I got a candy and I didn't eat my dinner. And what do you do as a parent? You're like, I take note of that. Either I take that candy back or the next time they come to me, Dad, can I have a piece of candy? Uh, no. Why not? Last time you did. Yeah. But you took it, then you rubbed it in the face of the other person, chose not to share because it was the last one, of course. And I, I get it. Like, I'm, I'm logging this away. All right. I see how this works. I'll keep that in mind for future. This is what's going on in this moment. Don't you know that I pulled you out of this broken system and now you're doing it to the, the very grace that was extended to you, you're pressing on other people? Do you not think I'm watching? Do you not think that I get this? This is, this is, the message right here is so clear on this way. If a person does not let a past act of grace guide his or her future beliefs or actions, that very act will guide God's own responses. Then he goes on, verses uh, starting with 11. I also raised up prophets among your children, Nazarites from among your, among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you make the Nazarites drink wine. They had these, these people who, like, they made this, the, the vow of the Nazarite, well, I will not drink, I will abstain from wine. I'm gonna make all of these, like, super uh, personal fasting decisions in this area, in this area, and I'm not going to cut my hair and all this kind of stuff, just to make like a statement. And then you like tease them into this. You make fun of them, or you 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 talk them, you persuade them into like giving in. It's it's you think it's fun for people on a diet for you to like eat brownies in front of them, and be like, yeah, these are so good, aren't they good? You should try just one bite, just try a bite. Like you're doing this to people. What, what's wrong with you? And commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then. I will crush you as a cart crushes with loaded or wind loaded with grains. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. And the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not give way. The horseman will not save his life. Very image-laden talk, right? Like trying to illustrate the point that nobody escapes this sort of thing. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. End of chapter two, the book of Amos. Here's the point. These, he starts off again with this idea of Let's look at the outside nations, but then let's also look at you. Let's look at what you have assumed is okay, and it's just not okay. Let's look at what you have deemed acceptable, and it's not acceptable. And what we are going to find throughout Old Testament social justice phrases is God's stance on the poor. And it plays out in the New Testament too, by the way, that God is on the side of the poor. I, the big idea that I feel like I'm trying to, I wanted to walk away with this week and the, that I've, try, I've tried to be living with and, and I really want it to be something that you think about this week is that God is on the side of the poor. Now, right away, our immediate reaction is, well, wouldn't it be better to say he's on the side of the righteous in spite of the unrighteous? I mean, the poor is on the side of the poor. What if, what if they chose that? What if that's like a result of their decisions? What if that's just, I don't know. Listen, this, this guy named Nicholas Walterstorff wrote a book called Until Justice and Peace Embrace. And in it, he talks about how, uh, there's a quote in here, God is not on the side of the Dutch-speaking people versus those who do not speak Dutch, which is, he, that's his context. Imagine it being like, God's not on the side of the Americans and not on the side of the Canadians, right? Or the Russians, maybe the Russians, I don't know. Anyways, on that, he is even-handed. I'm just kidding, obviously. Um, God is not on the side of one football team versus another. Sorry, Tim Tebow. On that, he is even, or on that too, he is even-handed. But the poor, that's different. He's like, on all of these things, he's not on this side, but not on this side, not on this side. He's even-handed, all, all, all. even-handed, even-handed, even-handed. But for some reason, it shows up 
over and over again in Scripture. God is on the side of the poor. In this area, he is not even handed. It is against his will that there be a society in which some are poor. In his perfected kingdom, there will be none at all. It is even more against his will that there be a society in which some are poor while others are rich. He is not on the side of the rich, and he is not even handed. What does it mean? Like, God's not doesn't like rich people? I'm saying, listen, God is on the side of the poor. And that's, that for me, I've tried to like live with that this week and think about that and process it. I don't consider myself in the same way that none of you do. We don't think of ourselves as rich. If I did, how many of you guys are rich in the room? You'd be like, not me. You'd be pointing fingers. That guy is. I saw, what he, I saw what he drove in here, right? We all have opinions on, on other people. We're, we're very generous in describing who's rich um, and uh, whatever. Anyways. Uh, none of us feel rich. We feel fiscally conservative. We feel uh, prudent. We feel very, like, very good stewards. Um, and if, we're, if we like, got down to it, we're like, all right, yeah, also known as stingy, also known as cheap, also known as greedy, like however you want to look at it, right? I'm, I'm probably one in all of those at the same time. How does it sit with me when I hear the phrase that God is on the side of the poor? Because I don't consider myself to be poor either. And, so I'm, and, and yet, um, why... What is it that makes it uncomfortable to say that, even though when Jesus is doing his Beatitudes, his Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Now, immediately we're like, well, it's poor in spirit. Well, actually, a lot of theologians believe that was added later because we were so offended that he would say, blessed are the poor. Well, we like to be like the poor in spirit, the ones who are like struggling in spirit, the ones who are depressed. There's the kingdom of heaven. Maybe, but perhaps, probably, blessed are the poor. Why is God on the side of the poor? And what does that have to say about us? What, what is that, especially, so here's what I love about Amos, because this idea of a broken economic system, as opposed to like Hosea or some of these other minor prophets where the, I, the comments are about a nation who's forgotten that God is like the ultimate allegiance and they've gone all the way of these, all these various other gods. In this specific one, it feels close to home because of the economic situation that we find ourselves in as Americans, as pretty wealthy Americans in this world. T.S. Eliot is an author who wrote about the English culture, and this was several years ago, but he, he wrote um, uh, his comments on the principles of the Christian faith on the culture of England no longer had a pervasive influence on social behavior. It doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't feel like it has an effect. Why? Because prosperity in this world for the individual or for the group is the sole conscious aim. They just attach a religion to it. But their goal, the ultimate goal, if you peel it all back, is prosperity, is stuff, is acquisition, is more, is wealth, is a bottom line, is retirement, is golf, is this. That's the drive, not the experiencing the goodness of the blessings of God, but hoarding, basically. So he says it doesn't even work. In that type of a situation, it makes people uncomfortable to sit with a phrase like God is on the side of the poor. Why, why does it do that for us? And perhaps, perhaps, perhaps we would say, no, I'm, I'm really generous personally and I vote this way and I do this and that and the other thing. But is there a chance, is there a chance that there are some things that we take for granted or, or is there a chance that we are blinded based on our failures for some of the injustice, and that perhaps the book of Amos would be something where we'd be like, this was true for them, but couldn't part of it be true for us? Is there something, God, would you, would you awaken to me? Would you turn my mind towards something that I've just kind of 
taken as this is business as usual. This is just how the world works. This is just how things are. Not much we can do about it. And would we then perhaps sit with God is on the side of the pool. How does that affect me? What do I do with this? What do I do with this? In my line of work, in my life, in how I'm raising my kids and how I'm treating them and how I'm voting and how I'm, and how I'm generous and what I'm doing? God is on the side of the poor. I wanna take a few weeks and try and prove that to be true for you. My question is, what are you gonna do with it? What are we gonna do with all of this? Let's pray. Father, this is uh, a difficult thing as we look back on like a message that is thousands of years old for people much different than us, and yet like we can kind of read ourselves into this. Like it's not that huge of a jump to see that economic disparity and oppression through debt and all of those things and how and our attitudes towards people who have less than us affect us. God, give us the wisdom and the courage to know what to do with what we've heard. And a little bit of a push and initiative to do something about it in your name. Amen.